Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Not So Rare podcast. We have Taylor Lewis, and I am Liz Beauvais, and we're really excited to have you with us this week. Um, Before we get started, though, we do have a couple quick items to note. We love to hear from you. We've gotten some messages via our social media channels and our emails, but we'd really love to hear from you more. So if you'd like to connect with us in between the podcast episodes, please find us on Instagram at the Not So Rare Podcast. Additionally, we also have a Gmail account if you want to send us a message outside of social media, and that's not so rare podcast at gmail.com. And both of these are included in the descriptions for today's episode. So for today, one of the topics we wanted to talk about is I'm really going to call it that moment when. And I don't think it's just rare disease. I think it's anything, any sort of chronic illness or any sort of scary diagnosis where there's at some point in your diagnostic journey where you as a patient realize this isn't going away. This is something that's here for the long term, and it's not a quick I'm going to take some antibiotics and I'll be better in two months. And so I think that we probably between Taylor and I have a couple different moments in our lives that this really applies to. And so we really wanted to talk today about what those moments were for us and really how they changed our outlook on either our disease or how we were managing our disease, along with how it may have impacted ourselves from a personal level. So Taylor, um, do you want to start and give a little bit of a background of some of the moments that you've had in your life that fit this criteria? Sure. So um, hi, everybody. I I was trying to think of this last night when Liz and I decided on this topic, and I realized that there's been different periods of time when this has really come to mind. And I find that when I'm doing really well and like medication stable disease is fairly stable. It's not something that I think of. And, and it's almost like when these flare ups happen is when you're like, Oh shoot, like this isn't going away. I have this. And, and so for me, it's kind of difficult to, it goes in waves, I would say, but the moment that it really changed for me and the moment that I was like, this isn't going anywhere and I need to make some adjustments was in my freshman year of college. Um, I was in Indiana playing division one tennis and I one day got this just horrible pain in my leg and I knew I had back problems, but I didn't really know like the leg involvement that I do now and like how all of that is connected with nerve damage and whatnot and your spinal cord. So I kept kind of going on and practicing and I was doing some lifting in the gym and I just felt this like immediate, like it wasn't a snap, but it felt like a really strong pull and I knew something like was messed up but I kept going because you really don't get a break in college sports. Um, It's a job. Essentially it's, you know, helping your tuition and it's, it's more than just, Hey, I I enjoy this sport. I'm going to decide to play it. So 
I ended up going to the physical therapist on campus and she's like, it was the middle of winter and I was in a full sweat and she looks at me and she's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm in so much pain. She's like, something's really wrong. And so it was right before we had, I think it was spring break at the time. So I flew home and my mom had booked me an appointment with um, my doctor. And so I went to the hospital and within 24 hours, I had emergency surgery. And it was truly like that moment in that situation where I was like, this is more than just an injury. And I think athletes view pain and injuries as temporary where this was the first time for me that this was like a life changing situation where I was losing bladder functioning because of um, my disease and my spinal cord. And, and on top of that, tennis is like one of probably the worst sports for a back. So um, that was the moment when I realized like, you can either keep playing and this is how the doctor described it to me. You can keep playing and become paralyzed or you need to give it up. And so it was so challenging to give it up. Like, cause it's like, you think, okay, it's an injury. Like I can get better, but you don't, it only gets worse. It's a lot to sit with on a Sunday morning. I, I guess one of the questions I have for you is how long did it take you from really having that surgery and understanding what was going on to being able to make that decision that you needed to make a change? So what I ended up doing, because we were like right in the middle of a semester. So I had to make adjustments with my school as well. And I'm in California, just had a serious spine surgery and I'm not approved to travel back yet. I had like three months recovery that I was supposed to do from home. And so the doctor said, you know, like you're not okay to just go back right now. And um, so I ended up thankfully went to a school where online classes were easily accessible. So I tried to kind of like change around what I could, but, and I, I don't want to put blame on my parents because a hundred percent super supportive. Absolutely. But I think there was a level of acceptance for them as well of me not being able to play a sport anymore. And it was hard for them, I think, to come to terms with like, we can't just fix Taylor. Like she's this is real and this isn't getting better. And so, um, that I, I hope my mom knows listening to this, that I, it's nothing in her control. It's really not, this is a disease much bigger than both of us. And we just had to kind of come to terms with that. And I don't think I accepted it until going through therapy just a couple of years ago. And granted this happened in 2014. 
So I went 2014 to about 2020 feeling like I gave up on something without even being able to make that my choice. One thing I've, I've learned as I've been dealing with our disease is it's not always us being able to make a choice there. In fact, I feel like with our care, there's, there's almost very little choice. Um, We try something because it's what's available. It either works or it doesn't for a little while. And then we have to try something different. And so I'm sure you're not the only one who's listening, who's felt like they had to make a choice that they didn't necessarily agree with. But I also don't think we're always in control of those choices. And unfortunately, sometimes our disease really does come into play and you really have to figure out how you're putting yourself first and find another way to still get your enjoyment or your experiences that you would have had otherwise. And I think just to give perspective of people too about that part of acceptance is that once you realize you're not a failure and you didn't fail at this this thing, there's something really empowering about that because we all need to understand, like Liz just said, that there's things we simply cannot control. I just last week started getting rid of my tennis rackets because they have sat on my garage shelf for years. Me thinking maybe one day I'll get back to it. Maybe one day I'll be at a point where I feel better. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting emotional about this, but I feel like I'll um, get better, but you don't get better. So Taylor, I know that you and I slightly in this podcast, as well as just in our personal conversations have talked about, I'm not going to necessarily say the word sport, but talked about other physical activities that you have found that you get enjoyment out of, not necessarily for the competition, but just for the being active and being engaged. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you've kind of found and Pickleball comes to mind is something that you've mentioned a couple different times of what you found now to kind of fill that piece of your life that used to be tennis. Yeah. So Rosie, if you're listening, Rosie, you are a big kind of reason why I shifted this thinking into like other things. And I pickleball is very similar to tennis however, completely different physically. Like can't even tell you, you don't end up after pickleball, like in pain and in suffering for a few days. Pickleball is just fun, but it's like the same like hand-eye coordination that you use in tennis. So some of it's very similar. And I like the aspect of pickleball where you can like play doubles. And so you have like a little team and um, it's just a really fun activity. And It kind of got me thinking about how Rosie has been able to shift her sports as her disease has progressed. And so instead of feeling like this loss of like, you cannot play tennis or else bad things will happen. It's like, okay, you can't play tennis, but maybe you can do this instead. And for those that want a little bit more information on who Rosie is, we have an earlier podcast called Meet Rosie 
where she talks about um, her love of sports and how she's been able to still continue playing soccer, even though she does have her disease. So for those of you that were curious about what Taylor was mentioning, please check out that earlier episode that we have out there. Yeah. So I would definitely say just for starters, that was like probably my big aha moment was what I had talked about with tennis, but tell me kind of like where, where things are at for you and what kind of triggered that reasoning. So my aha moment actually happened at a doctor's office. So thinking back to our journeys and kind of going through a timeline here, I first started going through this odyssey of doctor's appointments and surgeries back in, I want to say October, 2019. And so I had had a couple surgeries at this point and we're, we're February, late February, 2020. So right before the pandemic was really hitting the United States, I had an appointment with a doctor who I, I was basically told was going to be the person who was going to be my doctor. This person was going to follow me. They were going to put together a treatment plan. And I guess I was just kind of had my hopes up for a doctor at this point. Um, Every doctor I had met had talked this doctor up so much that I really thought that there was going to be a solution. I was going to go into this doctor's appointment and they were going to say, we did these surgeries. We did the biopsies. This is what it is. This is the medication you're going to be on. In six to eight months, you're going to be back to normal is really what I was expecting out of this appointment. And, and it was weird from the beginning because when they called to make the appointment, it, it wasn't the typical admin group. I'm going to use the word admin for lack of a better term. There's usually a scheduling group or some sort of behind the scenes group that does a lot of scheduling for doctors. Instead, this was actually the physician assistant for this doctor who called me and was like, oh, well, we'd like you to come in tomorrow. So I said, okay, I I guess I can make that work. Um, Great to meet you too. And I go into the hospital And this is a large education-based hospital. So many buildings, many departments. And the other weird thing was the check-in for it was where you would go in to have like a radiology appointment. So people are there waiting for MRIs, CAT scans, x-rays. And I go up to the desk there to check in and they're like, well, what are you here for? And I'm like, I really don't even know. I didn't know who this doctor was really just that everyone had talked this doctor up. I didn't understand how she fit into this group where I was in this waiting room with everyone getting x-rays. And so they look up the doctor like, okay, um, take a seat and we'll, we'll come and get you in this time. So I, I've sat there and the physician assistant who called me comes and gets me. And she takes me down these like long, long hallways that all have badge access and like the depths of this hospital. Like it, it, it really was very odd to what looks to what looked like used to be like a supply closet. So you go in and she had to use a badge to get into this little room. And there were still the shelves from the supply closet, like around the room. But then there was like an exam table, like on the side, like it was very odd. It, it seemed, 
I don't mean to interrupt you, but it sounds like you're in like a horror film right now. (laughs) Yeah, it it kind of, the idea that you needed to have like a badge to get like into the room really kind of creeped me out at this point. So we have like the basic physical and then the doctor comes in and she sits down and she essentially tells me everything possible that could go wrong with my disease. If this hurts, it means this. If this hurts, it means this. If you have this, it means this. And it was probably like a 30 minutes of her saying absolutely positively everything that could go wrong. And and then she says, you need to be on medicine, but I'm not able to prescribe that to you. And that's kind of how she leaves it. And she's like, if your back hurts, give me a call immediately. And I was like, well, I just told you my back hurt. So I don't know what difference in back hurt means. Um, But it was kind of at that moment where I was realizing there really wasn't an easy solution. And even if there was a solution, not every doctor I saw could help me get to that solution. So she needed needed an oncologist. But there weren't necessarily oncologists that knew about this disease in the health system. So she had to find those doctors. And if she found them, she had to make sure that they could accept new patients. And it was really just kind of the start of basically a six-month process of me calling her once a month. Um, I had her cell phone number. And the conversation was always, hi, have you found someone? well, no, but I'm talking to a doctor in two weeks or I'm talking to this person in a month or I'm presenting at this conference. I'm going to see what's going on there. And it was really just not even just the moment where I realized my disease was more than I thought it was, but also the moment where almost like the veil of healthcare was lifted for me. Like growing up, you got sick, you went to the doctor, you got medication, you went home, you were fine in a couple of weeks. It really started me diving deeper in the fact that there's other diseases or other other issues that people can have that the medical community hasn't been able to focus on or hasn't been able to find solutions for. And it it was scary. I mean, it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So not only did I not have a treatment plan, but access to a lot of doctors was cut, was shut down because they weren't letting patients in or accepting new patients. So it was really the mixture of that. Plus the, all the uncertainty that this doctor left me with that really started me realizing that this was something more, this was something that wasn't going away. Yeah. It sounds like we had very similar thinking in terms of like, you go to a hospital, you think you get better, you take whatever medication or whatever follow-up that the doctor presents you and it's magic, right? You're better and you, you move on with life, but this is very different and this is chronic and this is something that has to be managed, whether we like it or not. And I think it was also the fact that I didn't realize, and I think unfortunately many people don't realize this unless they're faced with it, is that there's so much out there that the medical community doesn't quite understand or know about yet. And that, that for me was so baffling because if you look back at the history of medicine, we've studied the human body for so long 
that there could be systems within the human body that haven't quite gotten as much attention as others or different diseases that probably have been around for forever, but because of how rare they are or misunderstood they were, there really hasn't been enough research understands the impact of those. And that for me was scary, but I just, I was so confused that this was how it could be. Yeah. And I, I think this topic is interesting that we bring up this week because since like starting to get rid of my tennis rackets and I'm going to donate some and I'm going to send some off with my mom so that she can use them too. But I really began to think about like what long-term looks like for my disease and like what that's going to look like for education as well. I in work because with it not going away and if it does progress, like I, I know that I want options in a career. Um, and so right now I'm getting ready to turn in an application for a PhD program, um, for social work, because I am interested in like an opportunity to teach as I get older, because I know that there may come a time when I'm unable to give therapy realistically. And that I think was just triggered recently from the flare I had with my GI symptoms that I want something that I can rely on as a backup because for me, I really struggle with the thought of disability. And I know that there may be a time in my life when that is something I need to look into. But at this point in my life, I do not feel ready to even approach that. So Taylor, I know that some of you going down this path is to give yourself other options, but I just want to say how proud of you I am that you're even looking for these options. You're looking for something deeper and having almost finished with grad school at this point, you know, it's going to be a rough battle to get through it, to give you that safety net, but I'm so proud of you for what you're looking to get out of this and how much acceptance goes into having to go through this process of, well, maybe life is going to be a little bit different, but I still want to have the same level of success that I would have, even if it's down a slightly different path, but still in the field I love. Yeah. Thank you for that. For sure. I think like when I look at what this disease has realistically kind of taken away from me out of my control, I think that what I do have left through all of that has always been education. That's something that our disease cannot take away from us. It cannot take away your master's in business. It cannot take away my master's in social work. Like those are things that we have. And we know we've had to make adjustments through our programs to help facilitate a better outcome with our health as we do that. But at the end of the day, that's something that we have and we have control over. So to our listeners out there, if Taylor, what is one thing you would want them to take away from this episode as they are learning more about their disease and the impact their disease might have on them? A big piece of it, and I am truly still working on it. I am still looking at how this is going to be long-term for my life. And we don't want to get into like a pessimistic, negative mindset of like, it's going to take everything away from you. But I think a big part of it is to except when things are out of our control, know when it's not our fault 
know that it's okay when things change. It's okay when outcomes end up worse before they get better, but there's always another opportunity, always another plan of something to do. When I lost tennis in college, then came my love and my passion for education and the mental health social work field. And now that's something that's so important in my life and very much the reason that I'm able to be where I am today and to be able to be on this podcast and without like that own personal self-reflection, I think that I may have been stuck. What about you, Liz? So I'm actually going to leave a message for the parents or support givers out there because I do know we have a large population of family members and friends that have been listening to us of individuals with rare disease. And it's almost a flip from what Taylor's mentioning is I know that when you are in someone's life, you probably have certain expectations of, well, if this is my daughter, she's going to go and do this and she's going to go and do that. And as you, as the support givers, what we really need as rare disease patients is the nudge to know that it's okay to pivot the nudge to know that you're still there for us even if things aren't going quite as planned. And I know that that sounds like a simple thing, but just as what Taylor had mentioned in her story is rare disease doesn't just affect the patient. It affects everyone around the patient, whether we want it to or not. And so understanding that it's okay that you can be sad that something's not going to turn out as it had planned, but knowing that because you are there as a support giver, giving the platform for the patient to be able to see what other options are out there is so huge for the patient. And to kind of add to that too, that when a patient is coming to you as a parent, especially our pediatric kiddos out there, that it takes a lot from them to be at a point where they feel comfortable sharing that with you and feel in themselves that they can talk about that because they may absolutely hate that too. They may feel the same way you do, but they know their bodies and they know their limits. And I think exactly kind of what you said, Liz, it could be really empowering and and a negative can be turned into a really big positive. So everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you were able to get from this some insights of how to manage some of those situations where your disease really seems to impact you and what that might mean for you going forward. Again, we love to hear from you. Please reach out. If there's topics you want us to cover, please send those to us. We'd love to hear the stories of you and your family listening to our podcast. It really helps bring us some joy as we go through our weeks and are preparing for our next episodes. So thank you very much for listening. And this has been the Not So Rare Podcast.